Arizona Sports. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Hey, happy Saturday, everybody. Steve Zinsmeister in. Mitch is out today. He's actually on vacation. We'll give him a day off. Why not? Riding solo today. Trev's behind the glass. He's going to be helping me out today as well. Big day in college football really officially feels back today. I know it's been back for a while. USC played like, feels like a week ago at least. ASU playing Thursday night, starting out on a Thursday like they tend to do. And today actually feels like the real big first day of college football to me. You get the debut of Coach Prime in the Pac-12, which won't even exist next year, so I don't know what good that does you. Um, But he goes into half with a lead, a three-point lead over TCU. That's kind of interesting. We'll talk about the ramifications of that throughout today's show as well. Um, But I wanted to kind of touch on the big story that seems to be getting some play nationally. I wake up today, and there's headlines all over the place. I'm going to read you a couple of these headlines. Headline. Cardinals get roasted over awkward Jonathan Gannon motivational speech. Headline, Jonathan Gannon awkwardly tries to fire up Cardinals during lackluster pep talk. Headline, Jonathan Gannon's Cardinals speech couldn't be more awkward. That one was written by Chandler Bing, apparently. Headline, Jonathan Gannon delivers worst hype speech ever. That's saying a lot. Headline, Jonathan Gannon's awkward speech to the Arizona Cardinals does not inspire confidence. This goes on and on and on. So much abuse. I know, right? This this one's great. Here, listen to this one. Cardinals head coach Jonathan Gannon gives one of the worst motivational speeches in the history of spoken word. (laughs) That's just that's just offensive. No holds barred on that one. Yeah, just ruthless, man. Jonathan Gannon fires up the Internet, but not the Cardinals players. I mean, how do you know that? NFL fans roast Jonathan Gannon for unbelievably bizarre speech. Okay, I think we got to play some of the speech now. I think we have to hear what some of it's about. And uh, this is from their latest episode of Flight Plan. It's the show on YouTube that the Cardinals do. It's kind of like a behind the scenes, uh, almost like a hard knocks, but not really because it's their own show. So they're not gonna they're not gonna cover it the same way that an outside source might. Um, but let's play some of the Jonathan Gannon speech, like where he this is, I believe, July 25th at the towards the beginning of training camp might even be the first time he's speaking to the team in its entirety. So keep in mind, the context matters. This is weeks ago that Jonathan Gannon made this speech. Welcome back. Good to see everybody's faces. Who who drove over here? Put Let me see your hands. Who took the bus? Did you have fire in your gut? Did you? We're here for a reason. Don't get that twisted. Okay, we're here for a reason to win games. So if you didn't have that fire in your gut, you better you better light the fire pretty fast. Okay? So everyone's on time. Everyone's got fire in their gut. How you go about your day is going to be critical for our success as a team. Winning behavior is winning behavior. On a daily basis, to become the best player that you can be so we can be the best team that we want to be. Don't show up a minute late. I'm finding you. Because you're not putting yourself behind the team. You're putting yourself in front of the team if you do that. And it's bull because your buddies are counting on you. You understand? Jeff's counting on you. Nick's counting on you. I'm counting on you. Hump is counting on you to do the right So do the right or we're going to get waxed. 
All right. Now, initial reaction to that clip. That's about a minute excerpt of JG's first big speech to the team. Uh, a lot of people thought the fire in your gut thing was a little weird. That was uh, a little weird. Is it? Is it a weird? I don't know what's weird about it. Is it the saying? Fire in your gut, like fire in your belly. Is that a weird thing to say to another adult male? <laughs> I feel like yeah. maybe that's a little weird. Yeah, I don't think it kind of landed how you wanted it to. Right. He didn't say it with gusto, too. I think is part of the issue that he kind of said it like, did you have fire in your gut? He said it like it was a basic question you would get asked any day of the week. Hey, yeah, did you eat yeah, breakfast yeah. this morning? Hey, did you, did you work out this morning? Did you have fire in your gut? Like it, it didn't come off uh, with gusto. So maybe you could critique that. Uh, there's the part about, did you drive in or did you take the bus? Um, now I'm not naive to this. I assume that there are some players who are on the bubble during training camp and they don't buy a car in Arizona. Cause they're like, I might not have a job next week, That's right. let alone tomorrow. Um, so I at least understand where that's coming from. It kind of came off like, uh, Alan, Zach Galifianakis's character in the hangover where he was like, Hey, how about oh, that ride in? Oh gosh. <laughs> Remember? Remember that part? Hey, how about that ride in? I guess that's why they call it Sin City. Um, but, yeah, there's some awkwardness to that. Here's the part that's getting critiqued quite a bit, actually. Truthfully, if you said, hey, JG, what do you want your team to look like? I want them to be killers. Truthfully, silent killers. Killers. Okay? So be who you are. Just understand I'm looking for f- killers. So it's the idea that he wants his team to be, quote unquote, killers. We, we talked about this when he got hired. One of his earliest statements was, I want my players to be violent. I want them to play with violence. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong about that, although no. we do live in kind of a PC 2023 society. Um, but this is a violent sport. I mean, every coach in the NFL would feel that way. I want my team to be violent. I want guys to come in and be, quote unquote, Killers. He doesn't mean that literally, obviously. He means it in the physical sense of the game. Yeah, he so wants I to stay that. aggressive. But again, he didn't really say it with gusto. He was like, how do I want my team? Eh, I want you to be killers. He said it kind of calm. And I'm not going to critique him for that. This is not the most awkward speech I've ever heard, by the way. I mean, there's some awkward coaches out there. You, got, you know, P.J. Fleck? Been in the Big Ten for a long time. P.J. Fleck's got some awkward press conferences, but he brings the energy. Yeah. A lot of people comparing this, they're saying it's like the opposite of Dan Campbell. Your team, Trev. That's that kind of popped in my head. Dan Campbell is like the, I will bite off your kneecap to win a football game. Uh, on the way up. Right. And people will run through a wall for that guy. So when you're comparing apples to oranges, I guess I understand where the criticism comes from. But Cardinals head coach Jonathan Gannon gives one of the worst motivational speeches in the history of the spoken word. Come on. Come on. Give the guy some slack. He's first-time head coach, first of all. So this is maybe the first time he's addressed an entire NFL team ever as a head coach. Yeah, I was going to mention that because I will admit he did, he sounds like an assistant coach talking to players instead well, he, of a head coach talking to players. That's a good point. That's all he's ever been. Here's the other thing, too, is this is July 25th, I think the video said, uh, so the beginning of training camp. This is not the only speech Jonathan Gannon will give in front of the Cardinals. It's not the only one he's done to this point in In reality, like in the actual timeline of how things go, he's made several other speeches since then. This is completely out of context. It's edited together, so we don't even know that we heard the whole speech. That's true. I actually liked what he had to say. I liked that he came out and said, listen, if you don't feel some sort of urgency, that's what he's talking about, the fire in the gut. If you don't feel that urgency to come in and do your job and do it well and earn a spot on this team, you're probably going to be gone. 
I actually respect that. I mean, you're keeping it real. How do we know this was supposed to be a super motivational speech, by the way? If it took place at the first practice, it's like first day of school, right? You go in and you've got this new teacher that you don't really know. They don't know you. You don't know your classmates. You might know some of them. Do you really want that teacher coming in and yelling at you guys and trying to motivate you to learn on day one? Or do you want them to come in and just kind of set the expectation? Yeah, I think you would set the expectation to ease in the the aggressiveness later. I actually respect that. You want them to come in and set the expectation. Make it clear. Hey, here's when your deadlines are to turn in your homework, which is what JG was saying. Don't be late. Don't be late. Show up on time. That's a basic thing that every head coach shouldn't have to say, by the way, but it's a room full of 22-year-olds. Let's be honest. When I was 22, I probably needed to be told by my teachers and others that I had to be on time. It's just kind of the way it is. I respect this about this. I've had bosses on both sides. One where I've had bosses where they made the expectations super clear to me. I knew what was expected of me when I showed up to work. And I've had bosses that kind of just let me do my own thing and trial by fire. And maybe some days I get yelled at for what I did. Some days I get congratulated. I've had it both ways. I prefer the clear expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Any day of the week. Give me the guy that's going to give me the clear expectations. I much prefer that. I'd rather be told the harsh truth than fluffed up by some fake speech. This was not a fake speech. You could evaluate whether you think it was good or bad. That's fine. But come on, the worst speech in the history of the spoken word. Like you've heard every speech ever spoken. How are you supposed to know that? JG likes violence. I think that's good. This is a violent game, by the way. Um, Also in this episode, it hyper-focuses on the coaching staff. Not just JG, though. It focuses a ton on coordinators uh, Nick Rollis and Drew Petzing. And also Jeff Rogers. They show him quite a bit, too. Um, This coaching staff, Gannon, Rollis, Petzing, even Rogers, feels completely on the same page to me. Completely. Which is different, right? There used to be this separation on this team. Cliff Kingsbury and Vance Joseph never really felt like they meshed to me. I liked the pairing because if you're going to have Cliff Kingsbury running the offense, I liked the idea of a Vance Joseph running the defense because he's a former head coach with experience in that area. And I mean, he had a top 10 defense almost every year he's been a coordinator or in charge of a defense. I liked the pairing. It's just that Cliff wasn't experienced at the NFL level. And it always felt like Cliff's show and Vance was just kind of off to the side. They were separate of each other. Offense, defense, not the Cardinals. It was just, this is Cliff's offense, this is Vance's defense. And when Cliff failed, Vance was just kind of sitting there waiting in the wings. Vance even got a head coaching interview opportunity after Cliff got fired. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I actually liked that. I I thought Vance was an intriguing candidate for the head coaching uh, job. I wouldn't have given it to him, but that's just based on the other options available. But it always felt like two separate entities, didn't it? There's almost zero focus in the latest episode of Cardinals Flight Plan. Almost zero focus on the players. I think Kelvin Beecham made a quick appearance at one point. Uh, a conversation that Drew Petzing was having with him. Hey, we were, we had a bad day. Make sure these players know what it's like to have a bad day and how to bounce back from that. I realized that this was filmed a lot earlier than it was released. So, you know, you did notice that they didn't mention barely any players. No mention of the quarterback situation. No mention of Zach Ertz's injury. No mention of Isaiah Simmons getting traded. 
or Josh Jones getting traded. It's not like I expected them to mention these story arcs. But if you're going to have a show that dives into the behind the scenes of your football team, you can't be afraid to touch on some of the sore subjects that pop up that fans inevitably want answers on. So I get that it was about the coaching staff, that this episode was not about the players. It was not about those storylines. This is not Hard Knocks. Hard Knocks has no problem touching on those difficult subjects because it's their show. And they have to get some level of approval from teams. But this is a Cardinal show. They they choose what they're talking about. And they were highlighting the coaching staff. Cool. I like that. I appreciate that. But if you're going to Cardinals flight plan to learn about some of the big things happening with the Arizona Cardinals behind the scenes, you're not going to see anything about Josh Dobbs. You're not going to see anything about Colt McCoy getting cut from the team. You're not going to see anything about Clayton Toon this week. Maybe next week. And I hope. I hope we see some of this stuff. I hope we find out how Josh Dobbs and Drew Petzing have been connecting since he came over so that he can eventually be the starting quarterback on this team, uh, which I fully expect he will be a week from now. It's just there's a lot going on there. And I I thought the Cardinals flight plan episode was better than advertised. It's not this wasn't the worst motivational speech in the history of spoken word. Come on. We'll talk more about the Cardinals for sure throughout today's show. Coming up next. The Arizona Diamondbacks made a big, big mistake yesterday. I'll tell you what it was and how they can still fix it, actually. That's coming up next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Steve Zinsmeister with you. Mitch got the day off. Trevor Henry behind the glass with me as well. And you know what I love about these Saturdays is this is kind of like the week one Saturday of college football. The week where all the big schools play the really bad schools. <laughs> Michigan right Tuna now. Games. Michigan working on East Carolina 30-0. to zero. Tennessee up on Virginia 28-3. to three. Oklahoma beating Arkansas State. Oh, they just scored 51 to 0 and that game is just past the second uh just past halftime. So that might be a a big hundy by the end of this one. But then there are interesting games going on today. Uh coach Prime Deion Sanders coaching Colorado for the first time today. He gets TCU in a tough matchup. They're up 24-21, although TCU did just score. Uh we'll get back to the college football landscape and what it all means here in a little bit. I think the D-backs made a big mistake yesterday. Yesterday was September 1st. Uh, There is September call-ups. You're familiar with this. This is typically when either big-name prospects or some players that can contribute to the Major League Club get called up for the last month of the season, and then they can contribute and possibly make it onto a postseason roster if your team makes it to the playoffs. Um, All those great things. Currently, the rule, the way it is now, is rosters expand from 26 to 28 players. And most teams call up one hitter, one pitcher. Uh, it could go either way. You could get two hitters, could get two pitchers. The Diamondbacks made their call-ups yesterday. It's just that they called up the wrong guys. They ended up calling up Paven Smith, who played pretty poorly throughout the course of this season for them. So that's a little disappointing. Uh, Frias, probably just a relief pitcher, some ec- an extra arm in the bullpen. Doesn't hurt, I guess. But it's not inspiring. And then Emmanuel Rivera's back as well. He uh, he will play and contribute at third base. But the problem is they should have called up shortstop mega prospect Jordan Lawler. 
who's currently at AAA. Now, he's only been there a couple of weeks, so I will admit the sample size in AAA is not very big. And his AA numbers, while good, were certainly not otherworldly. So it's not like I'm making the case that Jordan Lawler has played so well this season that he needs to jump straight to the major leagues right now. But I will make the case that he is the better option at shortstop or third base than anybody the Diamondbacks have. Third base is the only position the Diamondbacks have gotten negative war from all season long. They tried the Josh Rojas experiment. He ends up getting sent down to AAA and then later in the season comes back and then they trade him. So he's gone. Emmanuel Rivera has spent time at the minor leagues. He's a fine contact hitter, but a below average player, in my opinion. And the stats bear that out. Evan Longoria has had hot streaks. There was a point in this season where he was hitting home runs on a tear. And he's a pretty good defensive player, even at his age. Uh, But overall, he spent some time injured lately. Third base is the only spot in your lineup where you have a blatant hole. And you have a mega prospect sitting in AAA named Jordan Lawler, who is better, faster, better hitter than pretty much all of these guys that I just listed off for you. He's the better option. Move Perdomo to third and let Lawler play some shortstop. Doesn't have to be every day. He's better than Nick Ahmed. You cannot convince me he's not better than Nick Ahmed. You cannot convince me he's not better than Rivera. No offense to these players. They're all contributing on a team that's right now competing for a wild card spot. But this is the better athlete. In what other sport does your best athletes spend the first couple of years in their professional career preparing to play for the big league club? There's no other sport that does that. In the NBA, if you're good enough, if you're any sort of good, you play in the NBA in your first year. You're probably not going to the G League if you're drafted in the first round. Probably not. Some of that is changing, but I think that that's going to remain pretty consistent. In the NFL, you get drafted, you're playing. Pretty much, unless you're not making the team because you're drafted in the later rounds. Jordan Lawler, he just continues to prove the Diamondbacks that he's ready to do this. This was just two days ago. Lawler deep drive, left field, no doubt about it. Jordan Lawler, number three with Reno. 108 off the bat for Lawler. Three home runs in Reno and I don't know, what is it, two, three weeks he's been there? Not, not all that long. And I'm not saying that just because he hits one long home run, 454 feet, by the way, 109 off the bat, it turns out. Just because he does that one home run, that doesn't mean that he's ready. I understand that. But you cannot convince me that this player is not as good as Nick Ahmed. As even, maybe even Perdomo, who's having a really nice season, by the way. Very appreciative of what Perdomo brings to the team. He would still be playing in my scenario. You move Perdomo to third. Lawler plays some short. Nick Ahmed can still play some short if you need him to. The defense for Lawler might not be as good as Nick Ahmed. But that's okay. He's a 20-year-old. He's still learning. And I know still learning makes it sound like I'm making the argument for he should be in the minor leagues. He shouldn't. Let me make a comparison real quick. Back in 2013, go back 10 years ago, the Boston Red Sox accidentally won the World Series. I know that sounds crazy, right? How do you accidentally win the World Series? I wish the Diamondbacks would accidentally win the World Series, you're probably thinking. Uh, No, it's true, though. Because after Theo Epstein left the Boston Red Sox and kind of handed the front office off to Ben Sherrington and Mike Hazen became the assistant general manager, you might know that name, uh, the Red Sox had a plan to win the World Series down the road. They eventually go and do it in 2018. That was the plan. 
But the problem was in 20, and this is a good problem to have, believe me, in 2013, they found themselves with a hodgepodge of characters, uh, veterans like Johnny Gomes and I think Mike, Na- uh, not Mike Napoli, well, maybe Mike Napoli, but A.J. Pruszynski was on that team. Will Middlebrooks had been playing for them. They had this good cast of characters around their staples, Dustin Pedroia, David Ortiz, and all of a sudden they find themselves in playoff contention. But they have one position that's not working. Anyone want to take a guess? It was third base. Same position the Diamondbacks are struggling with this season. Will Middlebrooks, fine player in his career, but that season he wasn't playing all that well. I think he got injured in June or July, missed about a month, month and a half, comes back in mid-August, but at that point he's hitting 220-something, and they need they, they need something at third base to bolster their playoff contention. And so they call up a guy named Xander Bogertz to play some shortstop, to play some third base. Maybe he was ready, maybe he wasn't. But they called him up anyway because they realized that he had better potential and was going to be the better player in the long run than anything else they had at those positions. They already had Stephen Drew at shortstop, another former Diamondback that you would uh, know the name. So they decided to call up Bogertz and play him some at third, play him some at short, get him some experience. They win the World Series. Now, I'm not saying the Diamondbacks would win the World Series, guaranteed, if they call up Jordan Lawler. That's not my point. My point is sometimes you just got to call a guy up, even if you're not sure if they're ready. What's the worst that could happen? You call up Jordan Lawler, he doesn't play up to snuff, and next season he has to start the year in AAA? Okay, fine. At least you tried something. I've got five months worth of baseball that shows me that you don't have a real good solid plan or backup option at third base. Go and find one. Go and get this guy up. They would have had to have done it yesterday, by the way, if they wanted him to be playoff eligible. They would have had to make that call up yesterday. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's not really possible, right? Well, they could fix this. There is a rule that allows for injury replacements. So in theory, I think the Diamondbacks could find a way to fit Jordan Lawler onto their playoff roster. If they make it to the playoffs, that's first and foremost, because right now they're fighting for that third, maybe even second wild card if they're lucky. And the only way you're getting them on the roster is if it's an injury replacement, which I would never hope for a player to get injured. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying there is a way out of this decision they made. But they brought Paven Smith back up. They brought Frias back up. They brought Rivera back up. If you're fighting for a playoff spot, then put the best players on the field. Even if he's not ready now, he will be soon. This guy's got serious talent. By the way, I do want to briefly mention the Diamondbacks put in waiver claims for four different players. And this system is so screwed up that they didn't get any of them. Because the Cleveland Guardians decided to claim three pitchers. I don't know why this team that's pretty far below 500 decided to put in claims. I guess it's just because they have nobody in the rotation right now. So Giolito goes to them. Matt Moore goes to them. Reynaldo Lopez. It would have been nice to have any of those guys on the Diamondbacks right now. And the way that the system should work, Dan Heron, uh, who works for the Diamondbacks, actually, you might remember him, great pitcher from the from major leagues. Uh, I remember him mostly in Oakland. Dan Heron made a great point on Twitter, basically saying, if you've ever played in a fantasy football league, you know how waivers should work. You get your priority claim, and then you're in the back of the line. And how does MLB feel about these teams using waiver deadlines to offload their player contracts? The Angels just went all in acquiring all these guys, and now they're dumping six or seven players just as a salary dump. 
It's not like these players are going to the best contending teams. In a fair waiver system, the Diamondbacks would have gotten at least a relief pitcher out of this. Lopez, maybe more, maybe one of those outfielders that goes to Cincinnati. But nope, it's a messed up system. So they didn't get anything. Coming up next. ASU football made a judgment call on Thursday night, and I would have done it differently. I'll explain to you what I would have done next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch Barrelvis, Steve Zinsmeister, Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Mitch has the day off. Steve Zinsmeister with you. Trevor Henry behind the glass helping me out as well today. Watching some college football. We talked earlier about some of the big matchups. Colorado TCU ranked TCU, by the way, an experienced, really good quarterback. They're down three right now to Coach Prime as he starts his uh, his journey with Colorado, an experiment that I think a lot of people are really interested in. I'll, I'll tell you what, I don't know how it's going to go. I don't even know how this game is going to end, but I'll tell you one thing. In college football, it's all about talent acquisition, and I know that that's probably the case for most sports, but even more so in college where recruiting is everything. If you recruit the best players, you'll have a good team. I don't care that it's Colorado or their past history or the program's history. I don't care where they're playing. The Pac-12 this year, the Big 12 next year, doesn't matter. If you recruit the best players, which Coach Prime seems to be able or competent enough to do, he's going to have some good football teams. So I'm not saying it's it's the next great coming of a, a program, but I think Colorado's going to do some damage. And I think being up on TCU right now, being up on TCU at all in this game, uh, I think uh, is really a credit to Coach Prime and what he's got going on over there. I did want to talk about ASU. I know we're two, two days removed from the football game uh, over Southern Utah. You win the game 24-21. Uh, we could talk football all day long. Here's what I thought about the situation with the rain delay. Which essentially, I say rain delay, weather delay, dust storm delay, haboob delay, whatever you want to call it. The ASU game should have been called at halftime. This is my opinion. I'm no meteorologist. I'm, I'm certainly no athletic director or head coach. But here's what I think should have happened. You have two plus hours of delay. It's a midnight restart before you start the game back up again for the second half. It's 3 a.m. on the East Coast. Three quarters of the country is asleep. Maybe the entire country is asleep. I think a lot. I know a lot of people here who are asleep when the game. I I think I went to bed around midnight, maybe 12, 15, and they just started back up right before that. Um, So nobody's watching. There were 300 fans in the stands for the second half. I was told that by uh, Jeff Munn, by the way. You know Jeff. He's the pre- and post-game show host for the Sun Devil Network. So... Jeff said he he specifically went down into the stands in the second half to count how many people were there. He says 300. I believe him. So there's nobody in the stands. There's nobody across the country watching. Your game is on the Pac-12 network, which nobody gets. I say that a bit facetiously, but mostly serious. Nobody's watching the game at that point. You're playing an FCS school that nobody cares about. You should be kicking their butts, and they were at halftime, 21-7, I think it was at half. They should have walked all over Southern Utah and then walk over to their side of the stadium after an hour or hour and a half, whatever. I don't know at what point you do this, but they should have walked over Ray Anderson or Kenny Dillingham, somebody walk over to the Southern Utah side and negotiate a cancellation of the game at that point. Southern Utah gets to save face a little bit. ASU gets to go home. 
There is no reason to come back out at midnight because only one of two things could have happened. You come back out and you kick their butts while nobody's watching. A team that you were supposed to beat. So what's the big win in that? Or two, you come out flat and you let a terrible team back into the game and give them a chance to win the game on the last drive, which is what happened. You almost lost that game to a bad FCS team because you came out at halftime and you were flat. You were cold. For whatever reason, that delay affected the ASU team. Now, don't get me wrong. All this said, and and this sounds like a great idea, right? Oh, okay, Steve, just canceled the game. I, I get it. It's much more complicated than that. Kenny Dillingham was never going to let that happen. He wouldn't have wanted that game to end at halftime. Kenny needs to see more out of his freshman quarterback to see if he made the right call by playing Jaden Rashada. He needs to see more out of his 50-plus new players that he has in this program. He's got a lot to learn in the second half. He wants to be out there no matter what. Don't get me wrong. Dillingham learned something in the second half. He learned how his team reacts to adversity. It wasn't great. There's a lot to clean up, and he knows that. Rashada looked the part, by the way. I I liked Rashada quite a bit in the first half. Not as much in the second. He looked poised. He made some big league throws, I thought. Uh, the fade in the end zone was was a pretty great throw. A lot of people talking on social media about the, the long fourth down throw. Really gutsy, by the way. Call by Dillingham. And then a great, great play by Rashada. And the offensive line gets some credit there, too. How will he look against a more serious opponent next week in Oklahoma State? That's the question that everybody's wondering. And I'm not saying he's not up for it. I'm hoping he is. I'm hoping the whole ASU team is up for a game like that because it's it's a much different environment and it's a much different opponent. And you're not going to get some two-hour weather delay in the middle of it that's bizarre. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what happened in the Pac-12, um, not just over the last couple of months or a couple of weeks, but just yet uh, this week we learned that Cal and Stanford and SMU are going to the ACC. I don't care so much about SMU. Cal and Stanford leaving what is now the Pac-12, essentially was going to be a Pac-4 next year. Now it looks like it might be a Pac-2. I get why the ACC is doing this. The ACC is trying not to be whatever the Pac-12 is now. They don't want to be the Pac-12, where, which is to say they don't want to go extinct. But right now the ACC is doing what the Big 12 is doing. They're adding middle-of-the-road teams, middle-of-the-road athletic programs that will replace the big dogs when they inevitably leave for the Big Ten, the SEC, wherever it is they decide to go. We're talking about Clemson. We're talking about FSU. We're talking about Miami. Maybe even like a UNC. I don't know. Just because of basketball stuff. Like, those are schools that could probably appeal to the bigger conferences. Eventually, we're going to get to the point, I believe this, where the SEC and the Big Ten are the two big the two big conferences. We're arguably already there. Arguably, you could make that case. I think Clemson eventually jumps to the SEC. I think FSU jumps to the SEC. I think Miami could probably do the same. So the ACC sees that, and they look at that, and they say, okay, what do we do? Because we want to continue to exist. We got to go add some schools, even if they're on the West Coast, even if they're a four and a half hour flight away. Some of these schools won't stick around forever. Clemson will go eventually. So we got to go get Stanford. We got to go get Cal. Because someone's going to come calling for our big assets. 
Stanford and Cal student athletes are the ones who are going to have to pay the heftiest price on this. That travel schedule is brutal, no matter what the divisions look like. At least for ASU and U of A joining the Big 12 next year, at least they have the option of a division schedule where they're playing the westernmost teams. I don't know who that is in my in my head. I'm going through it. It's uh, it's probably Colorado, Utah. Uh, maybe you put like one of the Kansas, uh, Kansas State or something, Oklahoma State. The furthest east you might have to go is like Lubbock, Texas. That's my guess based on how I think the divisions will play out. But you don't have that option in the ACC. You're talking about a conference with the word coast in it. I mean, you literally have the East Coast adding two schools from the West Coast. Now, they're also adding SMU. That's kind of in the middle of the country in my hometown of Dallas. But forget about them for a second. Stanford athletes, student athletes, will have to take flights to the East Coast to play games. It's inevitable. It will happen. It's not like ASU going to Kansas. That's not the end of the world. Phoenix to Kansas, that's not that bad. Phoenix to Texas, it's not that bad. I go see my parents all the time. It's like a two-hour flight. Not that bad. Stanford, Bay Area, Cal, you're going to go from there to Florida to North Carolina? Man, I get why the ACC is doing this. And also, too, there's another uh, part of this entirely, and that's money. It's always going to be about money. I was reading about this deal, and I I totally get why the ACC is doing it. These schools, it's clear they just needed a place to play. It's clear because they're not going to make any money. Not a lot for a long time. Part of this deal is that Stanford and Cal and SMU are not going to take broadcast revenue for years. SMU is expected to come in for nine years with no broadcast media. Revenue, I should say. Holy cow. They're only going to get 30% share of the ACC payouts. The rest of that money is just going to be pooled up and divvied out to the other schools. The other schools are making bank on Stanford and Cal. Stanford and Cal and SMU will make practically nothing for like a decade. That's unfathomable that we ended up in this situation. And it makes you think about Oregon State and Washington State, the only two teams left from what is now the Pac-12. And they are sitting there wondering, what the heck are we going to do? Because now there's precedent of other other programs. I think Stanford and Cal are a bigger deal than Washington State and Oregon State. But for all intents and purposes, they were all on the street 48 hours ago looking for a place to live. And those two schools are looking at Stanford and Cal and saying there's now a precedent where we might have to join a conference and not make any money for the next decade just so we have people to play football against, people to play basketball, people to play the other sports against. Conferences are are, are weird. They're goofy in college sports these days. But you can't argue that they're not a necessity. They're still needed because you got to play somebody. And Stanford and Cal just proved that it's going to be a really rough road ahead for Oregon State and Washington State. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Just bizarre, man. Coming up next, another NFL superstar is unhappy with his team. Should the Cardinals consider trading for him? I'll tell you who it is and whether or not the Cards can get him. Next on Arizona Sports Saturday. And Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. 
Mitch is off today. Steve Zinsweister flying solo. Trevor Henry's behind the glass helping me out, too. Another NFL superstar not super happy with his team. Mike Evans' agent, Derek Gilmore of Day One Sports, uh, sent me a statement just now in which he says that the sides, or that side, Evans' side, will cut off negotiations with the Buccaneers if a deal is not reached by September 9th, which is next Saturday, one day before the Buccaneers uh, open the regular season. He says uh, beyond that point, 100% of Mike's focus will be on football. Now, he doesn't say it explicitly in the statement, but I believe that when he says cut off negotiations, it's not just, oh, for the rest of the season. I think he's cutting off negotiations, period, and that Evans and Gilmore will now look toward a future that does not wow. include uh, Evans in a Buccaneers uniform. Listen, the Buccaneers are kind of in shambles a bit. They have a terrible quarterback situation. As good as Baker Mayfield has been at times in his career, he's not a great quarterback. He's not the future. Tom Brady retired. We all knew that was going to happen. Eventually, he would go away full time. We knew that was going to happen. They've got all these expensive players who contributed to a Super Bowl winning team. Their fan base is fine with it, I'm sure. And, you know, in the moment, you're like, well, you know what? We want a championship. You know how many teams in the Valley would want to win a championship, even if it meant turmoil after that for a few years? I think they'd be okay with that. So the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going through what you call like post-championship growing pains. They've got all these expensive guys. They got Those players want to go and contribute to more Super Bowls, whether it's with this team or another. That's the position Mike Evans is in now. He wants to be a contributing wide receiver on a good team. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are not a good team right now. So I understand why he wants out. I mean, he may ask for a trade at some point. The Buccaneers, if they're as bad as I think they might be during the regular season, they may get to the middle of the year and decide, okay, yeah, we are going to try to trade Mike Evans. And I think that's a player you could probably get a good haul for. Now, the question is, how do the, how do the Cardinals play into this, right? Should the Cardinals be a team that goes and considers acquiring Mike Evans? Well, first and foremost, Mike Evans will want to go to a place where he feels they are in contention. The Cardinals are not. They're maybe the least. <laughs> they're probably la- the last team you would put in that category of they are contending. So with that said, Mike Evans has no reason to come to Arizona. So this would never happen, in my opinion. And what would it take for you to get him? Monty Ford is kind of in the habit of collecting draft picks, not sending them out. So you're just, you're as the Cardinals, you're not in a position to acquire a player like this. You're just not. He doesn't want you. You probably don't want him because he doesn't really fit your timeline anyway. You don't want to give up assets at this point either. So it's not a fit. But boy, would it be a fit like a year from now. Like, this year's too early for them to jump in on this trade, but what if this was happening in February when the Cardinals have, let's say, two top five picks? Their pick, the Texans' pick, maybe one of them is even the number one pick overall. And you've got this quarterback situation where you've got Kyler Murray, who, let's say, plays half, a quarter of the season. Even if he plays well, you're like, do we really want to roll with him again? Uh, Look at it this way, too. The Cardinals are coming off of a situation where they just cut bait with Colt McCoy. Now, that's in no way the same level as cutting bait with Kyler Murray. But part of the reason that I think they cut bait with Colt McCoy is because he wasn't their guy. He also had a minor procedure in the offseason. We'll talk about that here in a few, but um, he just wasn't their guy. This regime showed up and Colt McCoy was already here. That doesn't make him a bad player or a bad quarterback. or It doesn't mean they couldn't have won any games with him. I think they could have. 
Um, but they cut bait with him be, in preference of their own guy, Josh Dobbs, who spent time with Drew Petzing, or Clayton Toon, who they drafted because he's their guy. They picked those guys. They didn't pick Colt McCoy. He was already here. So with all of that said, you have to look at the Kyler Murray situation. He was already here. It doesn't mean Austin Fort thinks he's a bad quarterback. He might love the guy. He might think he's a great quarterback. It might be why he, part of the reason he took the job. What does JG think of him? What does Drew Petzing think of him? I think that the, it's all good vibes. Don't get me wrong. I think they love Kyler Murray the way that I I do. I always have. Been watching Kyler Murray since his high school days because we went to the same high school. He was a lot younger than me, admittedly. But what if a year from now, what if in February, what is that, like five, six months away? I can't do math. Let's assume that the Cardinals have two really good draft picks, and let's say one of them is the number one pick, which we all know. Everyone and their mother knows that Caleb Williams is going first overall in this draft. What if the Cardinals decide we could trade Kyler Murray? And if this situation was playing out in Tampa Bay where Mike Evans was available in February, it's not the way it's going to work out, but what if? The Cardinals could look at options where they trade their quarterback, pick a new one in the draft, and by the way, you're getting a great player in return, possibly some draft picks, and you could be getting the second pick uh, from Houston. I mean, they could be sitting in a really nice situation a few months from now. No matter what happens, no matter what player inevitably becomes available. In that situation I just dreamed up, which again, won't happen, but boy, if we could dream for a second. Arizona gets Mike Evans, you lock him up because you don't really have a number one receiver. Hollywood Brown's a nice player, um, but he's on the shorter side. Rondale Moore's on the shorter side. They don't have a lot of size other than Michael Wilson, the guy that they just drafted in the uh, in the draft this past year. Having a guy like Mike Evans would be really nice for the Arizona Cardinals. And I know I'm dreaming right now. And there's still the the pie-in-the-sky scenario that I know people love to talk about. So let's talk about it for a second. What if you get the number one and number two pick in the draft? Certainly not a thing that happens very often, huh? What if you get Caleb Williams, the best quarterback, and Marvin Harrison, widely regarded as the best receiver in this class? A guy of, like, Calvin Johnson-type ilk. What if you could get both and then trade Kyler Murray and see what you can get? Now, I don't want to have the discussion around what can you get for Kyler Murray straight up because uh, we just don't know anything about it yet. We don't know his health status midway through the year or at the end of the year. We don't know how good he's going to play when he comes back. We don't know any of that. So we have no clue what the value is of a quarterback like Kyler Murray uh, you know, six months from now. We just don't know. But could you dream about a scenario like that where Tampa Bay needs a quarterback They're currently sitting on Baker Mayfield, and who better to replace Baker Mayfield than Kyler Murray, right? We've seen that before somewhere, haven't we, at Oklahoma? Worked out pretty good for them. So you send Kyler Murray to Tampa Bay, you get Mike Evans back. I know, again, pie-in-the-sky idea. It's It's not even remotely possible, but it's fun to think about. You know, one thing, we were talking about Colt McCoy. I'll hit on this quickly. I don't understand the national narrative that because the Cardinals moved off of Colt McCoy, they are all of a sudden in mega tank mode. Like Mina Kimes said this this week. This is hardly the first example of uh, an NFL team doing an egregious tank. This might be one of the most egregious I've ever seen. Somebody who I highly respect their opinion, by the way. I I like Mina Kimes. I think she's really good at what she does. Um, Very thought-provoking in her work as well. She doesn't just throw out 
blazing hot takes. But like, here's one from Adam Shine, kind of similar. And keep in mind, this is this is kind of uh, launched from the fact that they moved off of Colt McCoy. You tell me if they're tanking. Release Colt McCoy today. They just acquired literally a couple of days ago Joshua Dobbs, who's on track to start. They traded a starting defensive player, a starting tackle. And they announced they don't plan to activate quarterback Kyler Murray off the pup list. Why do people seem to think that because they moved off Colt McCoy, they're all of a sudden tanking? I don't get that. I think Colt McCoy is a capable backup quarterback. He's not Kyler Murray. Not even close, really. I wouldn't have made the I wouldn't have made the decision to start Colt. I, I probably would have done something similar. You draft a quarterback in Clayton Toon, uh, you go and get another guy you're familiar with in Josh Dobbs, and you let them play. I think it's a better scenario. It's not that you're going to win more games. I don't think it's necessarily a huge upside play. I just think that when you get a new regime, they want their guy. Colt wasn't their guy. It doesn't make him a bad player. It's just familiarity. Drew Petzing knows Josh Dobbs can run his offense, so coming in a week before the first game isn't really that big of a deal. It's not. It doesn't mean they're going to go out and win the first game because he's so comfortable in this offense. It could go horribly wrong. They could lose all their games for the first half of the season. I don't know. But why do people assume just because they moved off Colt McCoy, like, okay, that was the last straw. They're officially tanking now. Colt McCoy's a capable backup in this league. Has been for a long time. He, I view him kind of the way that I did Drew Stanton back when he played for an injured Carson Palmer. Those are solid backups you can win games with. I, I don't understand. I mean, uh, does nobody think they can win games with Josh Dobbs? I think they probably could. He could win a couple games here and there. He's not the best. He doesn't have a, a track record of success in the NFL, but come on. Why is it all of a sudden they're tanking? The difference between Colt McCoy and Josh Dobbs and Clayton Toon I don't think is that dramatically big. I don't think there's a real big difference there. I don't get why people are so up in arms about this on a national scale. Coming up next, the Arizona Diamondbacks made a decision that I didn't totally love, and they kind of got screwed by the system and the way it works with the waivers these days. We'll, We'll dive into it a little bit next on Arizona Sports Saturday.